Welcome to the Fringe Legal Podcast, where we explore innovation in action. Each episode is a conversation with trailblazers sharing ideas, insights, and stories from the journey. Join us as we put theory into practice and shed light on the world of innovation like never before. Let's get started. Delighted to have Conan Heinz on the show today. Conan is the Director of Legal Technology at Freed Frank. He joined the firm recently, just a couple of weeks ago, and I'm excited to have this conversation. Conan and I spoke and he kept coming back to this topic of adoption, of building a tech-enabled culture, especially within a law firm. So we're going to dive deep into that. But Conan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So you've just joined the firm. Before this, you were at Clifford Chan. And before that, you were at another Amlo 100 firm. So you've been going from one large Amlo firm to the next. Tell us a little bit about your current role and I guess the focus of your previous role. We won't go through and look through your entire history, but the last two roles would be helpful. Yeah, please let's refrain from that because <laughs> I don't want to show how old I am. We'll start at Clifford Chan. I think what CC for Chantel, call him CC, was ahead of the market on was bringing the technology groups into the innovation spectrum and not just saying, oh, we have IT involved, but really putting in sort of front end business analyst minded folks who were focused on understanding not just what the lawyers were doing, but becoming experts in the technology and working hand in hand to find that adoption, that inflection point. So that was great because I didn't have to focus a ton on the tech stack. We have we had a really good one at CC. It was very focused on the psychology of the lawyer, the constraints of the lawyer, like what the opportunities were, how to build relationships. I tremendously valued those nearly six years at CC. But Fried Frank, hopefully I'm helping the great work that's already going on and bringing some of the, uh, the principles that I've learned and the tools that I think have worked into that work stream. But I will also now be more responsible for the tech stack and working on the vendor management side. So that will be new. And I'll also be working, I think, to build out an R and D function as well. Of course, right now that'll be heavily focused on gen AI, but It'll be more than that. I'm sure we'll dive into that as well today. We'll start with the adoption and building that culture. And across both of the roles, you mentioned a couple of the key components there. So there's, of course, the technology, the tech stack, and it could be what you have already. And it certainly will be at some point, what do you need to add or subtract, as the case might be sometimes. Then there is the psychology and the behavior of the users, because of course, that's the core thing that drives adoption and drives long-term change. And then, yeah, we'll touch on the R&D function, because I think that's an interesting segue. There's certainly many approaches to that. As you think about the users and the technology today, what's your approach in identifying what's needed? So how do you figure out is what we have at the firm now, is that enough? Is that good enough? How do you identify the gaps? And how do you actually bring the users and I'll call them end users as a generalization, but could be the attorneys, it could be anyone else who's gonna use the technology. How do you bring them into the fold so they give you the feedback? So they tell you, 
this is what we need. This is what will be helpful. Or frankly, this is a problem that that we would like you to solve because as easy as some of those things sound in theory, it's actually really difficult, at least in my experience, to get that answer from people. You go and ask them, how are things going? Do you have specific problems? And you either hear crickets or no, or you get pretty bad answers sometimes, which are incomplete and very high level for you to action on. I wish I knew the answer <laughs> to this. And we're definitely talking about ideas here and still looking yeah. for those silver bullet solutions. But I would say in the nicest way, it is brute force. Um, you got to be really nosy. I think it's not going to work for everybody. So you find those that are curious enough and you start very small and like the kind of the small quick win ideology, which isn't exactly what I'm talking about. I think it's just more bite-size engagements that start to build over time. My, my observation is that lawyers, we always say lawyers are really busy and that's not untrue, but they will give you time, right? If they believe that there's a good chance you can help them. I think a lot of the times they don't believe there's a good chance you can help them. Right? So that's what you have to overcome. And they, this is, will be a challenge. I think in my current role is how quickly do I want to make tangible, noticeable impact versus building a foundation, which I think is more than a 90 day, 180 day remit. It's going to take years and time to build those that network, right? So you find the right people who are interested and that's just canvassing. Start with the business services, talk to people, learn about who the personalities are, build that social graph within your firm. Take that and start having conversations with those people. And look, it's a balancing act. You're going to have projects that are going full throttle, then they're going to stop. And you're going to need to pick up something else. So it's very difficult to manage all the different initiatives you go on while staying at full capacity, but not over capacity. So once you've built some trust with your lawyers, you can move forward with them. I think you need it at all levels. Some of it is you get lucky with, you invest time with those who are going to stay at the firm. That's not always easy to identify. That can be a little deflating when you've spent time with someone who's moving up the ranks and now they've left for another opportunity. When lawyers start, I talk to them about, you know, being the best legal mind. That's what you're trying to be. You work at firms like Freed Frank and the like, you are there to be a high-performing lawyer, but it's going to take a lot of time to get there. One thing you can do is you can utilize technology, give yourself a more meaningful seat at the table, right? You can be a trusted advisor to more senior lawyers who really don't have as much knowledge about the tech and frankly, probably aren't doing as much of the work that the tech is going to impact, you know, there's work streams typically more on the junior to managing associate level. So trying to just be in their face, give them good programming, give them good content, be there, be available and just prove yourself in that manner. Once you've proven yourself, I found that you will have repeat customers and you will get more and more time with those repeat customers to really learn the ins and outs of what they do and then be able to deliver ultimately those solutions that they want. You covered it well there, which is so much of this comes down to trust. Of course, you have to 
find those curious people. Of course, you have to figure out where you can get those quick wins or have the bite-sized engagements and have your team that can support that as well. But ultimately, in order for people to give up their time, you do have to propose something that they believe is meaningful. And then they have to trust that you are the person who's going to come and deliver and actually take it to the end or take the information they give you and do something with it. And it reminded me of something this was in the, I think the Walter Isaacson book about Jeff Bezos. It, there was a point about trust there, which I think he says, where you earn trust is by just doing the hard things over and over again, and you get a reputation from that. And it's that simple. And I'm paraphrasing that, but is that how you think about it? And I'm asking you because of course you are brand new to the firm, a couple of weeks old. You certainly have a reputation in the market and people will see, okay, this person's coming over from CC. Great. That will buy you some credibility, but until you start doing something, they don't know. So is that your approach with, with the attorneys, with your team? Because of course you'll have to build trust with your team and everyone else that you're working with. And I wonder, and there, there are no easy answers or silver bullets here for sure, but I wonder how you think about that as you're new in this role. And I think you touched on having this sort of 30, 60, 90 day plans and they're helpful, but does a lot of this start with just you having a ton of conversations as you touched on, have building that social graph and just listening to people and trying to just figure out what's going on? Yeah, I'm, I'm like going through my thought process on this podcast. It's kind of <laughs> funny. So I don't, I doubt any Freed Frank lawyers are going to listen to this, but maybe they can get a little bit inside my head because <laughs> I think about how to get inside theirs. Mm. So it's some 3D chess going on, but actually it's not very complicated, right? It's, they want somebody who's authentic and somebody who's in it to win it. And the one thing that, you know, I can say, and that a lot of people can say that are in my similar shoes is that you know, just didn't jump into this one day. It's been a long journey and it's been intentional, right? I couldn't predict the Gen AI wave. It's a boon to what people like me and yourself do, but it was, it's bigger than that, right? It knew that it was really, we had a data problem, right? And technology was getting better. And so this is a place to be that it was as simple as that. And then just doing whatever it took to get to the place I am now, that's what I think your colleagues are going to respect, right? They need to know that you're really in it for the right reasons. So your track record can speak to that and just the optics. For example, I don't know if this is a big thing, but our office is casual dress. Me, I won't wear casual dress in the office because I am, first of all, I don't have a lot of cool hip clothes. I just look like a homeless person in my hoodie if I walked in, but it's also just like, I'm showing up because this is really important. This is really important. It's all optics, right? Do you do what you say you were going to do? Do you show up and do you not show up if you're the people you're working with aren't doing what they're going to do and build demand for yourself? So that's what I try to do early is, Hey, I'm in demand. These services are in demand first, hopefully get more investment for what I'm trying to do from the firm. But also flip it on its head. When I started at CC, there was no demand, right? So we had to build that demand. By the time I left, 
we were picking the projects and the people we wanted to work with, and we were setting the tone. And that's, I think there's some of that going on at Freed Frank, but I'm an unknown commodity. So that's the mindset I go into it with. From your perspective, Ab, on the mm. vendor side, right? One thing I think is there's, it's a partnership for adoption. And you're not absolved being on the law firm side from being well-versed in the tool you're trying to roll out. I think it's just a requirement for success. At this, I've, I've given vendors chances before and a lot of times they fall flat. And it's not that surprising because this is your firm. You know the people, you know the culture. Hopefully you've broken down the process, understand how this fits in. The vendor is there to support the product that you're buying. But I also find that vendors across the board are not coming with like a real adoption strategy and real learning from what has worked, which it just surprises me. I don't know if they don't share it or they really don't capture it, but I feel like that's the most helpful thing. Like showing that your tool has value, you get to a point where it's like, yeah, of course your tool makes sense. You're here. You've been here for years now, but how do people, how do you get people to use it? I don't mm. know how you approach that. Yeah, I think it's a challenge for a number of reasons. And I'll share some of the ideas that we put into place that have worked. They may or may not work for everyone. Part of that is sometimes it's difficult to really pinpoint the reason that it worked for customer A. And the reason I say that is we know what the tool is. We know how it works. I know the ins and outs of it. And we can deliver a training session. We can work with the technologists and the trainers and anyone else to identify use cases and figure out how it works. But there usually is a part of the firm's process in 99% of the cases, because most firms aren't that open, right? They'll invite the vendor to go and deliver a training session or two or three or speak to the attorneys, but it's very high level. It's at a group level. I think where you really figure out where, why things are working is when you speak to that individual. If I can see that this person's been into the tool 10 times a day, spending hours in there, creating new matters, assigning tasks to people, I want to speak to them and figure out why. It's great. We'll celebrate and we'll do a little happy dance, but I actually want to dig deep into that and figure out, okay, why are you doing that? And not the person who sits in the same office as you who has access to the same tool? Why are they only going in there once a week? Is it just because you have more work? Is it because you're just naturally inclined to use technology or something else? And I think it's that something else, if you can find the answer to that, but most firms won't allow you to speak to the lawyers that much, and they don't want to go and ask them the question. They don't want to be a bother, but part of it is just you got to break through that barrier. We're happy not to be the bad guy as such, but we're happy to go ask that question because sometimes having an outside party asking you that question just produces better results and different results. You ask a lot of your users, I'm sure, and a lot of it starts over time falling on deaf ears. It's the same reason when we do training internally for the tools we use, we can ask the same question as the vendor that we're working with but a lot of the times the vendor gets the more complete answer because this isn't someone that you're going to see and spend time with every single day. It's the same reason people open up so much to a stranger on a podcast or somewhere else than they will with people that they're going to work with very closely. So I think that's part of it. The way we do that is we come with either a lot of ideas 
or we'll just share the stories. We'll anonymize them. I'll, I'll give my personal view, which is I know the product really well. I know why it should work. And I have lots of opinions on the right way of doing it. And I can tell you 10 different scenarios based on different practices or types of users on how you should implement it. What I don't know is your users, how they learn, what the culture is inside the firm. And maybe they just absolutely hate sitting through demos, right? That's just a thing that they don't like doing because they've sat through too many demos or whatever the case might be. So we'll come to you and we'll give you an alternative. Let us share 30, 60 second clips that are useful for just-in-time learning. And I think most of the time, honestly, even if people have adoption plans, they need to be simplified. No one wants to sit through a 60 minutes training session, no, no matter how much they like the tool, right? Give them something simple with a clear ask, do this one thing during the training or straight after that so they can put the learning into practice. And the, I think the second thing, which has been a big unlock, and none of these things are rocket science, is you just have to do it over and over again, right? It needs to be either just in time, which as much as you can make it happen, or it just needs to be continual because I've learned many products and I use them. And then sometimes I don't need to use them for another three months. And then I come back and I was like, I wish I remembered what I needed to do here, how this works. So you just need to be that sort of constant reminder. If you have this kind of work, there's something available to you because it's too easy for people to just go back into, you know, what they're trained in doing, what they've been doing for the last X amount of years, the status quo for you. And you have to keep reminding them there is a different way, a better way to what you're doing. It, just try it. And usually for, I know for us, it takes three, four times before it becomes something that they will naturally come to. But you need to be that person that's nagging them a little bit over and over again. So you're hoping that you get them that one time when they most need it. Oh, actually, this came at the best time. Now I will go and do this. I don't know if that helps. No, I did, yeah, no, I agree. Adoption plan should be simplified and it's not a one size fits all. I just think it is a critical deliverable that is a partnership between vendor and innovation person. And when you think about adoption plans, what's your, either your preference or what have you seen that's worked? Have you seen, because I've seen adoption plans that are, here's an adoption plan that goes for six months. I've also seen adoption plans, which is, this is what we're going to do to get you up and running. And then after that, let's have a check-in every quarter or something like that. It is. And it's like you said, like getting down to the individual user that in a lot of ways is ideal and you get a lot of rich insights from that, but it's intense. It mm -hmm. takes a lot of effort to do that, especially can't really do it at scale at a larger firm. For most plans don't go to plan, unfortunately. Some things pick up faster. A lot of times maybe they linger longer. I think you have to assess the willingness of the teams. Are the same people still in place that were there when you were evaluating the tool and getting all that sorted? So that, that'll be a new challenge for me to see how do we, once we have tools in place, how are we evaluating their usage? 
Are we getting the value out of them? Is it, is it an adoption problem and the tool can work for us? Or is it a technology problem and the tool really isn't working how we had hoped it to be and then make decisions go from there. But I think you should have something transparent. You should have a framework. We're building that out further right now that there's something in place. We're going to make it even clearer, simple to understand and uh, welcome for people to, to engage in. I think we're small enough now that you just get your people who keep coming back. You will be successful from there once you've created that sort of demand threshold. Yeah. Yeah. And I, what I've seen work quite well is you have your problem statement. This is what we're trying to provide a solution for and actually attach to that, which is the thing that gets left off most frequently. This is what it would look like if we get this right. This is the outcome. And I say that because the outcome isn't always we have everyone using the product. It could be that we wanted to figure out a better way to run deals. And this is what the outcome looks like. Our deal cycle goes from 16 weeks to 12 weeks. Great. It, that may not be because every single person is using the tool, but you have the critical person who was the bottleneck before using the tool and now you're getting the right outcomes. So having that, what is, how do we know that we got this right as a question is important. Then you have the framework on how are we going to adopt this and that hopefully you're working with the vendor to do that. And they can provide a lot of the expertise. They can provide a lot of the knowledge, example, and resources to, to actually make it happen. And then you have the actual going through the motions and getting people incentivized to use this, because I think there is that incentive point. Uh, I know you and I discussed this in a chat before, which you need to find the incentive, right? Well, what's that? What's that Charlie Munger quote that you show me the incentives and I'll tell you what the outcome will be. And it's, I think that is so important. And a lot of the times it's not there, but tied to that, it's the tracking of the data, the behaviors and everything else. And it could be the usage for the tool because we're talking about technology. It could be the ROI calculation that you need at the end for a business case, or it could be something completely different. Maybe the ROI isn't there and from a true time-saving perspective, but you're reducing the stress. Maybe you're giving people a better work-life balance or something else, which is important and part of a retention calculation. But I think those things do make a difference. And I guess out of those, I'd love to take your, get your take on incentives. How do you think about the incentives? How do you that drive the right behaviors? Because not every behavior may be the right behavior. Yeah, there's not a direct incentive, like performance-based incentive mm -hmm. really at most firms and even the ones they try to implement, I think are difficult to oversee and maintain. Again, where the light bulb went off was that technology typically is trained in a different channel, right? If you just think psych back to psychology, I'm coming in, I'm an associate, I have legal trainings I need to attend, right? So. That means one thing to me. I also have to do these other trainings, right? Like probably like how to do expenses and how to do the technology training, right? These are separate trainings. They're viewed differently. If they had a bucket of focus tokens and they could use so much focus on all these things, they would put more of their focus on the legal trainings, right? Cause that's alliance. That's what you are as a lawyer. So one thing that I've done and will do more going forward is syncing all that programming into one channel, 
So the technology training is the legal training. So now the optics are saying, this is paramount to you becoming a successful lawyer. It's not those things that you need to know, like the must have, like, here's how you get to your DMS and enter time. It's now beyond that. You have to do things differently. And these are things that the more senior and seasoned lawyers can't really train you on effectively because they themselves are not practicing that way. So it's really invoking a new type of class of legal and different classes of legal professionals that will join forces and amplify that legal training while keeping the optics alive. So you do that. And I think subliminally, but also in the front of conscious, it will be something that will stick with the lawyers and it will show credibility when someone like myself is coming to you and asking you to test this tool on your deals and coming with honestly the knowledge of those deals. One of the things that is just comes with experience like being able to go into someone's practice and understand what they do is a lot easier to start a conversation that you're like, Hey, like I'm really interested in tech and I look legal tech and, but what do you even do? What is even like the basic things that you do? And it's hard to start from that point because by the time you get to the problem, the lawyer has to go back and start building again. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. It's hard. It's just really hard. It'd be, it's stacked up against us. And, but I think that tide will change soon as things come to reckoning. Yeah. And I, I think for law firms is, it, it is challenging because as many of the individuals will have billing targets, they have other focus areas and at least what I'm seeing, which is fantastic that there are mavericks within the firms that are championing innovation. So doing things in a slightly different way. I think what the challenge for the profession as a whole, not any one firm is how do you work with them? And there are the pushing and pulling where on one side, it's trying to say, look, just be focused on your role, just be a lawyer, whatever that means. And don't worry about all this tech stuff and innovation and different ways of doing things. And there are other firms, which is what I would like to see more of, who instead of resisting that innovation, and I don't mean innovation in the sense of technology always, it's innovation in the, in the sense of doing things in a different way. And sometimes it's leveraging tech and sometimes it's a process thing or something else. They symbolize it. They go through and they say, yes, this is how we do this, right? Let's put this person and show them as an example that you can think outside the box and you can win and we will reward that behavior by recognizing you and saying that this is one way to go. Not to say that everyone should do that and it's always has to be the case, but I think there needs to be some sort of a recognition and or reward for drawing outside the box every now and then, because that's how you expand the box a little bit. And I think in your role, certainly you, maybe you're that maverick. I don't know. We'll find out. We'll chat again in a year's time and see, see how things have gone. Maybe I'm certainly crazy. I think sometimes or what we set out to do when everything is stacked up against us, but really I would just say for me, you got to have some fun with it. I think another way to attract people who are going to be with you is to show that this is also just not another business as usual thing that you're bolting on. We're just, we're going to have fun. We're going to be a little silly. We are trying to make it inviting to those who 
just want to come in and do things that are going to take some time to get used to. And like I've said, like really R&D happens in the live deal in a law firm. There isn't really this lab. We're not set up to have that incubate it and then bring it out to market. It's you got to try it on the fly. So if you don't keep it a little light and you don't think about how you're delivering your message, then you're not going to be doing the best job that you can. So I would just ask the audience to, to think about that a bit. Yeah. And I guess one, one way of getting ideas on either thinking differently or how to actually conceptualize the live R&D that might happen in a deal or a case or something else is stepping away a little bit from it, right? Switching your brain off from the work. Um, so you're not working 24 seven and you're not just so focused on a problem that you sometimes don't see the big picture. And I know you do that through your passion project is your antithetical work of having a toy store. So curious, as we start wrapping up, talk a little bit about how you disconnect. You're a technologist who can disconnect from technology at times, right? You go back to the, the mechanical, the very sort of physical way of working rather than the, the bits. So yeah, how does that impact your work, how you think about things and when you're then connected into solving te technical problems? Well, look, if you have a bunch of users who are sitting in the dark ages, then just put yourself in the dark ages <laughs> and you'll have a better understanding of their position. I kid a little bit, but it really is like, you look back, we have a toy store, we have no electronics in it. Um, it's very much about imaginative play. And that's what I think of with lawyers. They have this kind of imagination of how they can use these tools to co cobble together their own solutions. Eventually there'll be a market for that cobbling. And that's where legal tech vendors are born, right? <laughs> in those situations. So I think it's, we got to step back and we got to stop. Even AI, what's your AI strategy? And to me, it's just, it's just a tech enablement strategy, right? It's always been there. You've always needed it. AI is just the next thing, right? And I'm sure at some point there'll be augmented reality that we're doing and all sorts of other things. So you don't need a new strategy for that. I'm sure you need to update, right? The programming and the substance of what you're doing, but the, the culture that you've you should be building now or have built should support that, whatever you bring at it. And it's more of that things are going to come. They're going to come fast. We might adopt something, bring it in. We might need to scrap it in two years and adopt something else or add on to it. So it's just that ability to change and ability to not find yourself in a box. And when we're at the, I'm at the toy store or I have a little kind of farm in my backyard with chickens and gardening. It just gets you out of this. I'm going to come up with the best tech and it's really not the best tech. It's really, how do you humanize the problem at stake and how do you build that, build that rapport with the end user to fit it in? We're not looking for perfect, but we're looking for better than what we had. That is hopefully a net positive versus the effort that it takes to implement. So it's important for people to have hobbies and not be all in the tech all the time. And I follow those people on LinkedIn who's posting all this great tech stuff, but I'm just like, you guys are wild. How are you by your, <laughs> you must be by your computer 24 seven playing with all the different LLMs that are out there. And for me, I'm glad other people are doing that work because that certainly 
won't be made and won't probably help in the, the longer term goal of seeing the new modern tech enable law firm. Yeah. I think I'm one of those people. I think there's a need for fight. Uh, I think you, you need both, right? But absolutely. Sure. I think you're, you're certainly flexing your creativity, problem solving muscle from a different perspective, actually. And you do need that. You do need that broad spectrum of perspectives as you're trying to tackle big problems. So it de definitely helps, but I will say doing work or playing or just having a hobby that is completely antagonistic to what your day job is, what you are, what you are the best at, I completely see value in that. And I think having a farm or a toy store or whatever else people have, something else that can fuel their passion, it's absolutely important and critical for a, a successful team. Yeah, completely agree. I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation on this stuff and meeting those who are on the, this journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good time to start wrapping up. You're, you're new in the role, but I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot of, a lot of update as you learn more and as you put things into practice. And if people want to reach out, I'll include Conan's LinkedIn so you can connect with him. And I'm sure he would welcome the, welcome the connection and any support or questions that you might have from him as well. But yeah, this is a really good conversation. I know we touched on a lot of difficult topics and we probably don't have any clear answers, but hopefully this inspires people to and gives them a perspective into how we think about the think about different ways of approaching problems but yeah i appreciate your time and looking forward to staying in touch and seeing how the role develops awesome likewise ab thanks for having me thanks Conan. and that's a wrap for today's episode of the fringe legal podcast thank you so much for joining us journey through the minds of trailblazers sharing ideas that inspire us all if you enjoyed this conversation don't forget to subscribe rate and review the podcast your feedback is what fuels a commitment towards providing quality content that sparks innovative thinking until next time remember to stay curious keep pushing boundaries and turn those ideas into action